yellowing marble. It could have been much worse. The facade of the building is stark white, and the only thing that identifies it as a school is a small brass plaque, the size of a sheet of notebook paper, mounted to the left of the main entrance. There are four stories above the ground and two below, and the building is shaped like a U, with the bottom of the U facing the street and the center containing a private courtyard where the girls can take their lunch trays when the weather permits. There is also an old sugar maple, which at this time of year still has bright green leaves, and from a branch of which, it is rumored, a girl once hanged herself to death after a particularly difficult calculus final. It is near the base of the same tree that two girls can now be seen malingering in poses of boredom or irritation on one of the picnic tables set up around the yard. They are seniors, and they take it as an obligation to be constantly gazing with disinterest in directions that nobody else is gazing. One of them, Dixie Doyle, a pretty girl with ironic pigtails, takes a lollipop from her mouth and says, So... I think my formative years are over. Really? says the other. This is Andy. She is tall and never quite knows what to do with her shoulders. Over the summer, I marked on the calendar every day that something formative happened. I looked back at it yesterday. Four formatives and 72 blank squares. Well, maybe something formative will happen today. It seems unlikely, Dixie sighs. It's September. Formative things happen in June and July, mostly. August, at the latest. Andy nods at the irrefutability of Dixie's logic. Andy is the daughter of Mrs. Abramson, one of the English teachers at Carmine Casey, and everyone suspects her of having an intellect that towers over that of her friends. Dixie takes the lollipop out of her mouth and looks at it with one eye squeezed closed, as if measuring it against something in the distance. Did I tell you, she says, that I slept in the hall for two weeks? The hall, Andy says. What hall? In the hall, while my folks were gone. They went to Rome for two weeks. What for? They wanted to see a pita. The round bread? No, Dixie says. Not the bread. Don't be silly. Pisa? You mean Pisa, Dix? The leaning tower of Pisa? No, Dixie says again, shaking her head. A pita. It's a sculpture. It's a marble sculpture of Mary Magdalene or something. Oh, the Pieta, Andy says. Michelangelo. Right. Of Dixie Doyle, it is said that she could convince grown men of anything. While she is only a mediocre student and a wholly untalented tennis player, she possesses a quality of performed girlishness that turns sex into a ragged paradox for men beyond the age of 30. She speaks with the hint of a babyish lisp, the pink end of her tongue frequently peeking out from between her teeth, but her eyes are implacable fields of gray that at any moment could conceal anything you imagine, or nothing at all. She might be an X-ray registering the skeleton of your soul, or, like Oscar Wilde's women, she might be a sphinx without a secret. But when her friends look at her, especially Andy, who now rubs her eyes open as though her mother were waking her up from bed, 
What they see is a violence of feminine spirit, their own desire for which they can only begin to articulate. So anyway, Dixie continues, after they left, I realized I couldn't stand my room anymore. You know, I was just done with everything in it. I wanted a new perspective. I wanted a non-bedroom perspective. And I saw this thing on TV where in old mansions in England, some of the servants used to sleep in the hall. So I got Brady to come upstairs one day, and he moved my bed into the hall. All I know is that hallways in England must be bigger, because it just barely fit. Brady moved your bed? Andy asks with a half-smile. Brady is a boy from the Bardoff Boys Academy. He lives in Dixie's building on Park Avenue. He just moved it. And it's just Brady. Anyway, when the folks came home...